iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I think we're entering an era where videos cannot be blindly trusted. In many ways, this is already true. You don't even need deepfakes. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, deep fakes were on my mind. The election is upon us, where there are various doctored videos flying around the world, some of them more convincing than others. There was that Nancy Pelosi video uh, this summer where she was supposedly drunk. She wasn't. You may have seen the video of Boris Johnson endorsing Jeremy Corbyn. He didn't. But it really does make you wonder the rise of this kind of the rise of deepfakes, what the future holds, as it becomes easier and easier to make really convincing videos for any number of nefarious reasons. So I tracked down the man that the MIT Technology Review has called the world's top deepfake artist. He is Hao Lee, and he's a computer science professor at the University of Southern California. He runs a startup called Pinscreen. He's really good at deepfakes, and he has amazing hair. Look him up. You'll see what I'm talking about. But anyway, uh, because he's down in L.A. and I'm up here in the Bay, we had to do this over the phone. So what you hear now is our conversation about just how dramatically deepfakes are improving, Uh, what we can do in a world where we can no longer believe what our eyes are seeing. And we'll pick up the conversation with the very, very surprising way that this technology really got going. So, here he is, Hal Lee. Enjoy! In 2013, I joined uh, USC. And a year later... I spent a summer at Weta Digital where I worked on uh, Furious 7. So Weta Digital is the visual effects company behind Avatar, Hobbits, Lord of the Rings. Right. Uh, and yeah. you worked on the F- Fast and Furious, whatever, which, whichever number. I mean, there's so many of them now. It was it was Furious <laughs> 7, but it was a very yeah. special project because it's almost like the beginning of like going toward these you know, deep fake kind of problems. Because in Furious 7, uh, the project was basically about bringing Paul Walker to life, who died in a car accident. Oh, yes, 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 of course. Right. So that movie was interesting because before I joined there, they were, you know, they, we had you know, phone calls with Weta. They said, we have a very special project for you to work on. And they can't tell what it is. 
but I kind of guessed it was this because my specialty was actually on digitizing faces and also on, you know, capturing performances. Right. And when I went there, like the first day I saw they were like, you know, present, presenting it. I was like, oh, well, <laughs> that's yeah. um, okay. That's a, that's a uh, really cool project. It's interesting because when I went there, they, they said, this is the problem. Now we have to start building a team and uh, see how to even address that. These are already a few things that we've been looking at. These are some footage, test footages that we have recorded. Yeah. And um, we need an entire pipeline for this, right? And the difficulty back then was there was already a lot of people making movies with realistic digital humans. But the thing that was really new was, first of all, this actor was young and people knew how he looked like. It's not like Benjamin Button where you have an older Brad Pitt where if you're inaccurate, you, you know, it can be forgiving, right? So yep. he was young. Most of the settings were not like dark setting. It was like pretty bright. So there very were, little room for error. Basically. Yes, yes. And there were like <clears throat> 200s of shots. So that was something that was new because you need to build some technology that could actually scale. So we started, <clears throat> you know, building up a team and then the, the whole process was the following. And the other thing was it wasn't captured in studio because, you know, he passed away. So you have to do on set, right? And his brother was the actor. And what they wanted to do was basically recreate a digital face of Paul Walker and basically stick onto his Brother. brother's face. Um, I mean, he has two brothers and, yeah. a, and a stunt person. So it's, it's always someone different. And uh, they basically need to match his performances really, really accurately. And then composite and the face. The, and also the voice. Right. I think the voice is relatively easy because you can find someone who sounds like him. If I remember correctly, it didn't speak that much. Uh, anyway, the appearance was something that was very challenging. So how much of what you did, how many, I don't know, minutes or seconds of what you did ended up in the film? Or do you know? So I, I basically worked on the technology for that. So there were only a few shots because they were filming while we were developing it. And oh, I see. Right, so basically, we developed the technology that would track his brother's facial performance on set. Uh, we had a few footages, right? So there was this mm -hmm. one scene where they were, you know, the car was like going from one uh, skyscraper to the other. Basically, I had to work on those, and then they would use the technology for the rest of it. Got you. Right. Got you. Got you. And so, that process—is there a kind of a, a, a dotted line or a direct line from? Because you talk about the technology, but what is the technology that you came up with? And did that lead directly or indirectly to kind of your work in deep fakes and, and what you're doing? <clears throat> I, think, I think the overall problem, right? So back then, I think, you know, you know, for production, typically you wouldn't develop too many new things. You wouldn't conduct like yeah. real science. Uh, that's something that we would do at university. But back there, you would basically engineer things and architect new things, a new pipeline basically to make it work and experiment with a lot of state-of-the-art methods, many of them that you know we've been working on for years uh, in the past. And then most of them are about tracking the face. One thing that came out of this is that it's possible to create very, very convincing digital faces of you know young actors, and mm -hmm. there's a possibility to scale all this. But then- and That was something that before was not clear you could do. Yeah, also I think it is thinkable for people, but you know, just no one really pulled it off because yeah. you need that kind of project actually to do it. And back right. then, these things are so expensive, right? Uh, and so that's the main thing that came out of it. It's so expensive. Mm. It takes such a long time. It basically means that 
it's not something you can easily just use if you if the director wanted it. It has to be a project. Right. It has to be uh, an investment for pulling this kind of project off. So is that are we talking like millions of dollars to do something like this? Yes, yes. And I would guess many months, weeks, months, months, kind of. Yeah, months, months. If not, probably more than half a year, right? So and it's like wow. Yeah, it's like uh, I mean, post production usually takes very long. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm not even counting like you know all the different departments that have to work together because VFX is basically just a, a full pipeline. These few months where I was, you know, working on this project on the USC side, you know, we were, we started developing scalable facial processing, capture and animation technologies for the whole time. Right. And scalable right. basically means that we knew that there is all these VFX companies get, you know, it's like mm. uh, businesses that have very low margin. And that's sort of like what we do in our field in computer graphics. Right. We're trying to develop technologies that are not only for films, but mostly focus in entertainment, trying to make it more scalable, right? So that's sort of like the new direction where we want to avoid the need of... So the thing that's expensive are digital artists that are being involved. So we want to get better results, more affordable solutions. The approach that we took uh, to get there is basically we started with data-driven techniques, right? And data-driven right. means that, well, you know, Instead of having a person, you know, using its imagination to create all these things, why don't we use performances of someone? What if we can generate images that look more realistic? So instead of like programming all the shading and the, sim the simulation models, why don't we use real video footages for these kind of algorithms right. to generate something more realistic? So we started looking early on on how do we adopt deep generative models to computer graphics problems, right? And computer graphics problems that are that have a lot to do with, you know, faces, human bodies, etc. Yeah. And the other challenge is how do you go from 2D to 3D? Because our main representation that we're using is most of the times three-dimensional assets. So yeah. <clears throat> we had to basically understand that as well. So that's sort of like where the research goes, where we started to develop techniques that allows us to generate photoreal content from images as inputs or you know just you know without anything but then the idea is basically that the content has a similar representation as the one that you have in computer graphics so when and what year were you working on the paul walker furious 7 that was project? uh summer 2014 to do that cost millions of dollars and took many months yeah now we're in almost in 2020 to do something similar, I'm just trying to kind of quantify how how far things have come. I yeah. Mean, now is it kind of you can do it in a couple of days and it costs what, you know? Yeah. So we have to be a little careful how we formulate this. So right now, using, you know, all these advancements in deep generative models, many of them, these techniques are core technologies for a lot of the deep fakes that we have seen. I would say that we can probably... So you can't compare exactly because they're both still a little bit different. So yeah. the deep fake, so let's say the best deep fakes that we have nowadays, they are still limited by some by resolution. Uh, there are some things that you still can't control. However, it's evolving so fast that I see it is coming. To give you a concrete example, most of the movies are shot in 4K nowadays. So deep fakes are kind of still limited for you know face resolution size, especially when it's like animating. You know, it's hard to avoid artifacts and all that stuff but 
these are things that you know we, we we're better and better but resolution is still probably one of artifacts the, you mean little telltale signs that this is a computer generated right thing. right yeah however there are many of these kind of artifacts are easy to avoid right so if you right. if you would implement a pipeline to avoid these things it's possible as well so to go back to your question I would say that nowadays you can actually have you know a single person train these models in a few days and create something very very realistic. Now maybe the better way to uh, answer is how difficult would it be to use a traditional VFX pipeline to solve to create a deep fake that we see nowadays? That would be still very expensive. But I guess the point is is that now it's. It's fairly ubiquitous, and a lot of it is it is it accurate to say that a lot of this is now also open source? Like you can go on yes. GitHub and yeah, yeah, yeah. So deepfakes are, you know, there are various uh, open source version. There's deepface, uh, deepface lab. There's FaceSwapGAN. You know, all these different variants. There's even an app in China called Zhao that allows you to take a picture. It's like even a more advanced version. You just need to take a picture of yourself. And it can basically, you know, insert that inside a video. What? So I can, it can, I can take a picture of myself. Yeah, it instantly insert that into Titanic. So you become, uh, you have the role of DiCaprio. That's wild. And I guess that's the other question, though, is so something like that, or generally, it feels like there is, you know, not all deep fakes are created equal. Some of them are very obviously fakes. And some are obviously not. I mean, how far are we from the point where we can make very convincing, like really, truly hard to tell that this is a, a fake? You know, how far we are away are we from that, being able to do that kind of at scale and like, you know, not anybody do it, but for it to be fairly easy. Right. So that's, that's, a, that's a funny question, right? So I can give a random answer. But I would say that it depends on the resolution that you're outputting. It depends on the level of noise. You can easily generate something that I think for the naked eye is already imperceptible. Yeah. So there's so I organized an interesting workshop a few weeks ago in Australia at uh, SIGGRAPH Asia. So the workshop is called uh, Truth in Graphics. Uh, and we had invited a lot of uh, speakers and panelists. And uh, Google was there as well. And they had this like interesting presentation where they were showing how deepfakes look like, I forgot what it was like half a year or a year ago, and yeah. how deepfakes look like nowadays. And you can see this like huge improvement, right? The one before right. is like kind of a little blurry, you know, when they turn their heads, it's like, you know, it gets, yeah. it gets a little weird. The new one is like, um, I think if you see it for the first time, you wouldn't even notice it's a deepfake. And only if you look very, very carefully, you would see one. And of course, it depends on the case. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Uh, mostly these kind of things depends on uh, the date, the training data that you're using. So yeah. if someone knows, doesn't really know how to use it, they would probably not have a good choice of, you know, training data. And of course, there's a lot of parameters that you can tweak as well, right? And then if these things are well prepared, you can generate, I would say nowadays off the, you know, out of the box, you can get something, I don't know, maybe 90% there, right? And then the remaining 10%, you can basically either have additional algorithms to to remove the remaining artifacts or you just add noise to it to basically hide all the you know uh, fabrication evidences if you wanted to right and then now the question is that what's going going to happen next well you know in the next couple of months and i mean not even next couple of months right so 
we're seeing like improvements like all the time. Another capability, another capability, because these things are popular. In the next six months, you'll have like another wave of this is what's possible right now. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if you know in the next six months you'll see like high resolution things. Right. And so that leads to the question of just like, are we basically entering an age where it's like the, the kind of the end of trust or the end of faith or I don't know what the end of, you know, whatever the kind of best way to sum it up is. But you basically, you can no longer believe your eyes. I think, I think we're entering an era where videos cannot be blindly trusted. In many ways, this is already true. You don't even need deep fakes. Um, you can cut a video in a way that would already fool someone into believing something. The other thing is that it's also a phenomenon that already existed back in the 90s when, when Photoshop came out. Uh, there was this yeah. same question of, you know, is this the end of democracy? So there was another workshop where uh, another, you know, top expert from Google was, you know, giving a presentation. And he was showing like some interesting footage, you know, footages of a TV show he, he digged out. Uh, from where you know where they were discussing with when Photoshop was released, there was the exact same questions. They're like, "Wow, now you can alter, manipulate any image. Like, can we trust anything yeah. we see?" Right, and now it's the same with videos, right? But on the other hand, you know, I think people are going to when they see videos, they will start to doubt. Like, if you see an image, anyone nowadays would say, "Well, it's photoshopped," right? How do I know? Yep. It's but it didn't it cause so much damage, right? It's like yeah. it's not like the end of the world. But, um, you know, people would actually start to adapt themselves and say, well, you know, it's, it's just a video. How can I know this is, this is true or not? So right. I think just that itself is something that is, I think, important. And it's uh, definitely true, right? No one would ask these questions when they watch movies, right? They say, well, it's just special effects. But yeah. um, now it's getting democratized, so it's becoming the same. Has the government been in touch at all with you of like, okay, what do we do about this? We're, you know, because obviously we have the elections coming up. You had that Nancy Pelosi video that obviously went viral. Um, this is clearly front of mind, especially, you know, in politics. I think the government is putting a lot of efforts into, you know, the problem of disinformation, video and image manipulation. So DARPA, a couple of years ago, uh, started this program. That was before you had all these like deep fakes and all that stuff. They started this program called Metaphor. It mm -hmm. stands for Media Forensics. And basically it funds like a lot of universities and projects, you know, on video and uh, image or, you know, audio manipulations. So I had a collaboration with Hani Farid from Berkeley. He's like a, mm. you know, professor in, um, who specializes in, in media forensics. That project, for example, was funded by DARPA. It's kind of interesting because they started a new program recently called Semaphore, which is called Semantic Forensics, right? And there it's basically saying that, well, you know, it's getting harder and harder to um, detect deepfakes. We need a new approach, right? So just right. by looking into media is not enough anymore. What is, can we somehow use AI to analyze the semantics of information that we're consuming, like whether it's a video, whether it's audio, whether it's an image, whether it's uh, a whole news article, mm -hmm. um, can we analyze, can we understand from the whole context what deepfakes, you know, if something is a dis, something is a disinformation. And deepfakes are only a small instance right. of the whole so thing. Right, so looking for, for artifacts, so right. to speak, in the kind of holistically rather than just right. like, oh, his cheek is a bit blurry or whatever. Right, or is this thing even... 
is does this thing even look artificial? Just that right. itself is interesting. However, you know, on the other hand, so we can put all these efforts into like detecting, we can believe or not if something can be detected or not. But then there's one thing that is kind of true too, which is even if you know if something is fake or not, it can still cause damage, right? So to give you an example, if you want to put someone's face into pornography, you know, yeah. a lot of them you see they're fake, but yeah. it's already, it's, it can be already very damaging, right? can damage someone's reputation by just spreading that kind of content online or by sending this to 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 people in their circle. This is something that is already problematic. So even if you know it's fake, it can be damaging. There have been cases where people have conducted user studies where they even tell you this this information is, you know, wrong, this one is right. Yeah. People still want to spread the wrong information, right? So right. there's a whole problem of you know, maybe the information itself, maybe it doesn't even matter. The, the question is, what is there? What is what are the intentions of these, um, you know, information and intention is something that's extremely hard to analyze. I think it's where things should be going. And then just going back to the, the, the deep fakes thing. So is it fair to say that you're you're fairly kind of sanguine about what where this might end up? I mean, if you're using the example of Photoshop in the 90s, everybody was freaking out and it was all fine. This feels, this does feel like it's a kind of a different level because it is video. Yes. Yes. Videos Uh, are, you know, a lot more powerful than images um, because you have, it just, there's just more information in it, but we have to be careful. Right. So I think, I do think that people will, they have to get used to it because there's no, no other way. But on the other hand, there has to be uh, laws that would actually prevent people from, spreading wrong information. I think that's sort of like one of the potential solutions that could be very effective. Actually, several countries have already uh, laws in place, right? So China, Australia, right? And uh, even in California, there's some bans in terms of like how, um, you know, know, against things like deep fakes. Yeah, because it's mostly pornography right now. Yes, yes, right? But I think there should be laws when, you know, they are being used in a harmful way in general, right? But pornography, I think, is a big one because that's one instance where even if you know it's fake, it can be extremely damaging, right? And if you say, you know, the Nancy Pelosi case, it was fake, then it actually looks more bad for the person who created it, right? Hmm. And, And, you know, or people who believed in it. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The kind of the leaps that have happened between, you know, 2014 when you're working on Furious and where we are today, is this just general developments in AI and machine learning, or were there other were there specific hurdles that all of a sudden you cleared, and all of, and now it's like, oh goodness, this is this is really good now. Yeah, I can. Yeah, so let's say even before 2014, people started to develop uh, technology. Well, including myself, started to work on technologies that are more and more accessible to people. In a couple of like other labs at Stanford, UW, you know, that also mm-hmm. work on you know. Uh, related problems on manipulating facial performances and videos, mostly for entertainment. But most of them always had this slight uncanny valiness or you, you need a lot of processing before to even get one video footage. So, for example, you need to record a foot, specific footage of someone saying certain things so that you can actually generate whatever you want. So right. those are like things that nobody really would be worried about, right? And yeah. then... When they see, they're like, oh, maybe it's the end of actors in the future. But it's always like in the future. But then, you know, the first time I heard about deepfakes was interesting because that was like around 2017, 18. And it was like in the news. I got a call from the investors. They're like, hey, was this you? And I was like, uh, and I saw it in the news. You have like this actress, uh, you know, being inserted into porn. And it's going viral. I'm like, oh, my God, what, what, what is going on now? Then we were like, so it wasn't me. <laughs> we, we actually don't know who the um, original author is from the deepfakes. But then the main thing that has changed is the introduction of deep learning into, into this. And the reason is that it basically generates things that in some ways overcome the uncanny valley very easily. And that's Something that For people who don't know, can you just explain briefly what uncanny valley? Is? Yes. So the uncanny valley is a phenomenon in uh, psychology, where, for example, you are trying to replicate a human, and specifically the human face. When you create an artificial human face, the more normally you would think that the more realistic you get, the more natural it feels for a person, but it's not the case. So when you start with a stick figure and go to a character that looks more like Pixar, you feel you feel natural. You, you, you know you can have you can have an emotional connections with them. But yeah. once you start to get into uh, something that is not entirely photorealistic, but like semi photorealistic, let's say like Final Fantasy or you know these kind of characters, then they start to get you know you feel repulsiveness actually from them, right? So you're like well, this doesn't look right. It looks like a zombie to me. And you just feel that this looks like horrible game character. And then you get more and more photoreal. It gets even worse. And then only when you get... So you get too real, but not without being real. And it's just creates a reaction. Unless you get really, really real and you get everything right, then suddenly you feel no difference to reality. And that's where... Then it's a deep fake. And and I think (laughs) deep fakes get very close to something that's very real immediately and that's and you know the the most expensive part in the film industry is actually to get that last few percentage right so that you overcome the uncanny valley 
And that last few percentage takes is so expensive because it's hard to define what it is. Right. You need really, you know, an artistic eye. So even like with engineering before, it was like something almost impossible for us to do because you need like the artist's eye to actually see, you know, when, when artists, you know, do paintings, it's similar, right? So they would, yeah. some are just like, you know, their brain is just, they can replicate how things, some things just look like a photo, right? So you need that yep. kind of thinking. And um, with the face, it does it for you, right? It just goes straight to there. And there are, with, thanks to deep learning or the development of deep learning. Yes. So the use of deep neural networks to generate images, that's that's sort of like enabled the um, generation of content that would bypass this uncanny valley. And even if the resolution is low, right? Yeah. Before that low resolution was equally hard as the high resolution one. But then right. the problem is just how do you get everything right? And that's sort of like what the deep neural net is good at. And um, yeah, so that's the... So deep learning effect, because machine learning is like, it's kind of just brute force. You just crunch to a lot of data and you can replicate stuff. But deep learning, it sounds like it can do that as well as basically take the image, make a leap with that image that machine learning cannot. Yeah. Well, I would say classic machine learning because deep learning is part of machine learning. And I guess that's the other thing is that, you know, it's a lot easier to do this stuff with things like, AWS and you know where you have basically cheap computing power to to do all of this in a way that you didn't before. Yeah. Um well all you you just need a GPU actually. Really? Yeah. You just need a single GPU. You can train um you just buy a a good GPU for uh 500,000 bucks. You can train it in a few days you can get a pretty good model. Wow. It's a brave new well. It's a brave new world, <laughs> right? Last question. Um, so, how is it that you became known as the the world's best deepfake artist? <laughs> I think that's a that's an article from the uh, MIT Technology Review. I wouldn't call myself the world's best uh, deepfake artist. I think there's a lot of like real artists that are really good at creating, you know, fun video manipulations, uh, etc. But you know, it's why not? <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is is there anything else that in this world that we th- we should be thinking about that we haven't covered, or that thing that's you know uh, coming down the line that could kind of change this again or make it even more difficult to to detect? So I think the main concern right now is that a lot of these algorithms work using this adversarial approach, and mm-hmm. this adversarial approach basically means that you have a way to create something, and you have something that can detect if it's real or not. Yep. And um, this kind of mechanism itself is self-improving, which is that if you have something that generates and then you say, well, I have something that can detect it, well, then I'll just generate something new that can generate as long as the other one cannot, well, as long as you can actually fool yeah. the other one, right? And if you have this detector, you can basically train another one that can actually make it <laughs> fool, fool the detector again, right? So that becomes right. that becomes the issue um, because this whole mechanism becomes like this, and at some point it has to converge to something where well it is just real, right? You get every pixel right, and or so many pixels right that you know it's practically impossible to detect the other thing. So you know the more logical approach is really to you know think about how can we prevent on a higher level. Like what? What can what can be done to prevent uh, the generation of 
you know, false information that are spread. Um, you know, I think the you know, one of the issues isn't really, I mean, it's not only the technology itself that generates fake content. It's basically also the entire, the platforms that actually broadcast information. So if you look at social media, uh, social media itself is kind of a, are kind of designed to not prioritize trust, uh, truth, sorry, right? Yeah. So the thing is anyone can generate content. The contents are never fact-checked and the way they are being spread are uh, prioritized by if they are, you know, sensational news, if they're angry news, if they're things that makes people want to share. And most of them are not the truth, right? And, you know, so the, the, the key thing is you don't even need deepfakes to create wrong information. There's one thing, nice thing about deepfakes is that they make people think about that, the whole thing. So I think that's right. That's that's one thing that I think is kind of a a positive side of deepfakes because they're kind of visual and people start discussing. Well, you know, what I see might not be the truth, but you know, anything you read, you know, you have to wonder if this is the truth or not. And then it goes even deeper, which is anything that we say is kind of you know when we have the tendencies to say something, we are yeah. already trying to manipulate someone into thinking something. So like even on a philosophical level, this is like, you know, <laughs> we're manipulating each other, right? I'm trying to yes, convince yes. you this and that. You're yeah. you're asking, you want me to say certain things in this interview. So there's already yeah. a little bit of that, right? But to go back to the disinformation spread, I think social media is something extremely powerful. It can be also for good too, right? It mm-hmm. can all, It's not something when you say, hey, you know, you have to eat healthy, blah, blah, blah. Even if it's, you know, why does it concern me? I'm fine. But why... Yeah. But it's not it's not something that's bad, right? So there are things that I think so the intention is one thing that is that is important. Yeah. If you see, you know, Bill Hader turn into Tom Cruise, everyone laughs. And everyone thinks it's amazing. It's it's super cool. Yeah. There's no bad intention behind that. So I think that kind of stuff yeah, I think people have to be careful like what exactly they're trying to censor and not censor, regulate. Yeah. But it does feel kind of like um Maybe it's not the end of trust, but it's another, it's a serious chipping away of just like. Well, what what is important though is not, we have to talk about this because people have to, so the number one thing is people have to know that this is possible. If they don't yeah. know, it can be very dangerous. And there are, of course, already all these instances, right, where people have already started using deepfakes, you know, to, you know, blame things, you know, things that, yeah. oh, you know, it never happened, it was deepfake. Um, there are things where, so that wasn't using deepfakes, but it was using like, you know, voice changing software yeah. where, you know, this, this company that got actually tricked into people thought they were talking to the CEO and then, you know, there was this yeah. fraud case, these kind of things, right? So it's, it's possible. And that is all the hot time we have. I want to thank Hao Lee for taking the time to explain all of that. Um, who'd have thought that the tragic death of Paul Walker could help bring a kind of leap forward in this technology that is now disrupting politics around the world. Weird. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back next week, same place, same time. I've this deep fake stuff. I feel like I feel a feature coming on, so keep an eye out for that in the newspaper or the magazine or what have you. And we'll be back next week, perhaps even with a double feature two episodes i'm feeling inspired uh, in the run-up to christmas anyhow if you do like the show please take a moment give a rating and review on apple podcasts it really really does help 
other people find the show and you can find me online as well at Danny Fortson on the Twitters um, you can also find my various scribblings on thetimes.co.uk or in the every Sunday in the Sunday Times newspaper the good old dead tree version anyhow I hope you have a fabulous weekend and I will talk to you next week iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.